it's quite hard for many people to think at this population level. We often think at a smaller scale. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the March 3rd episode of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objectives are to define herd immunity and discuss how herd immunity is reached. This educational activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Eli Lilly and Company, as well as in-kind support by DKB Med LLC. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He will be interviewing Dr. Jones from the Applied Population Laboratory at the Department of Community and Environmental Sociology at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Jones, Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Faith. And it's wonderful that uh, Dr. Jones has been able to join us today. And uh, the, the, the topic for uh, this uh, conversation and the next one centers really on immunity and specifically herd immunity, which has certainly been a topic of conversation and, and, and why it's so important perhaps because it probably represents uh, the endpoint for trying to say the pandemic has ended in all likelihood. So, you know, as we start our conversation, it's interesting that cases had rapidly declined after the holidays, but now there's a little uptick and we have this tension between states sort of opening the doors, a uh, Texas announcement that uh, all's well, we're back to normal versus uh, federal and healthcare systems for the most part saying we should sit tight until perhaps we get more people immunized. So I thought, <laughs> Dr. Jones, I mean, I've heard a lot of definitions about herd immunity. Um, you know, is there a, a specific scientific definition that, um, uh, makes sense. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm I'm excited to talk about herd immunity because I agree with you. It really is the the big picture endpoint for the pandemic being over. You know, there is a technical definition for herd immunity that that I could um, anyone could look up, but I'll just talk a little more broadly. That it's it's just the idea that enough if enough people are immune to an infection, then any one person who happens to be infected is unlikely to come into contact with someone else who is susceptible or who might catch it from them. And by doing that, if we have enough people who are immune or can't get the infection, then the disease can't find a new host and it's not passed on through the community in a chain of transmissions. And, and eventually the disease will die out. Um, it can die out entirely 
and that's what's called eradication or it can it can die out except for very sporadic outbreaks which is what we call elimination when we're thinking about herd immunity many early in the epidemic or pandemic many focused on the r naught that is the reproduction you know uh, of the virus and is it over one meaning you're infecting every person is affecting two or three does it mean that if you are less than one, we're going to be at herd immunity? Does that, is that what that means? Well, so there, there are two ways to think about this. Um, there's kind of this temporary measure of how much the disease is spreading and how many people each infected person is giving it to, which is called RT. Um, and that's sort of the observed, you know, current conditions. And RT is actually really sensitive to the kinds of non-pharmaceutical interventions that we use to reduce transmission, like working from home and wearing masks. And by manipulating um, the effective reproductive number, or RT, we can reduce how many people each infected person is, is giving COVID to and get that number below one, which means that cases are declining. Now that's not the same thing as what we might think of as a really durable um, long-term solution that I would call herd immunity. But some modelers actually do call anything below R RT as one. Mm -hmm. They will call that temporary herd immunity or herd immunity. Yeah. The thing is, is, it is very sensitive. And so as soon as Texas reopens, um, we would very much expect RT to go back up again. Mm -hmm. And as soon as it gets above one, cases will start growing. So what we're really looking for is some kind of more durable immunity or uh, you know, some way to permanently or at least long-term suppress the number of people each infected person can give it to. And the way to do that really is by, um, by immunizing, by producing immunity through vaccines. Yeah, you know, uh, I, in our uh, conversation before we started, I, uh, we, we both have a shared uh, interest in measles virus. And I, I just think as an example, going back over decades, uh, how was the concept of the percent of people that need to be immunized for measles, how was that figured out? How, how was a number decided? Because it's one of our most contagious viruses. And one could argue that some of these variant coronaviruses might be close potentially. Yeah, measles is in fact one of our very most contagious uh, diseases. And by that, we mean that, you know, it, if no one were immune under natural, you know, going about our regular daily lives, each person who has measles could give it to a dozen, 15, 20 other people because it is highly contagious. It's both easy to uh, transmit and, and easy to catch. And so, um, when we figured out what the herd immunity threshold is for measles, it's a calculation that's based on the number of um, the number of people that each person who has measles could give it to uh, in the conditions where no one was immune. And um, that is actually called, you know, that that uh, condition is called the R naught, the number of people who could get measles from an infected person if no one were immune. It's actually turns out to be quite hard to pin down exactly what R naught is, um, because it is very sensitive to those to things like population density and whether people ride subways and um, you know whether uh, hand washing is readily accessible. And so um, R naught is a little bit tricky to figure out, which is why we 
very often hear scientists talking about the herd immunity threshold is about 95% for measles, and we think it's about 70% for COVID. Yeah, so it, it's all estimates, and it's honestly, it's only when we have instances like the measles outbreak in Southern California at Disneyland, for example, or instances where it looks like children are not being immunized as sufficiently that we, we see a, a outbreak if uh, um, uh, someone travels from overseas and brings uh, measles here. Now, we have this as certainly an endemic infection. Uh, it's uh, across the globe. I think, I, I think Antarctica at the moment uh, is still <laughs> COVID-free is my understanding. Um, oh, really? I think actually, uh, I heard that Antarctica was, was the last one that got it. But oh, they did. maybe they did. All right. I missed that, that article. Okay. But, but regardless, um, so, so the herd immunity, and because I think globally, there'll be many more infections outside of the United States, probably by summertime, if we're lucky and the immunizations are robust enough here in the United States. How does that factor in? Because obviously uh, there'll be people coming back and forth and so on. So does that move the threshold higher as opposed to just having our own um, uh, citizens immunized? It's an interesting question about the scale of herd immunity. This is actually very close to what I really study. You know, just as the, the threshold, the way that we figure out how many people it would take to reach herd immunity for a specific disease, there's a, there's this crude way to do it, which is just, um, you know, based on the number, how many people we observe are um, diagnosed with COVID today, and we compare that to how many people are diagnosed with COVID a few weeks later, we can estimate this thing called the, the um, effective reproductive number. And then we get this crude estimate from that of what the herd immunity threshold is. The really, you know, to get into the specific exactly what the, the herd immunity threshold might be, um, you have to think about how people interact with each other and how people move around, um, how densely clustered they are together, you know, um, variables around how the disease itself spreads, and it all gets quite tricky. One of the things that we see for measles, as you mentioned, is that um, there are in general, in the United States, we actually have pretty good coverage for measles through the measles vaccine. Um, nationwide coverage is upwards of 95% for kids entering kindergarten for two doses of measles. But we still nonetheless see outbreaks of measles because at some scales, we see these clusters of people who don't want to vaccinate their kids. And uh, very often the outbreaks that we have seen in recent years emerge from those little clusters. And, you know, for example, um, we had a huge, uh, almost a year long measles outbreaks in the United States in 2019. Oh my gosh, it's been a long year. I can hardly remember <laughs> what that was like. <laughs> and that originated in uh, in a subpopulation that had really low vaccine coverage because of um, some religious objections to vaccination. We've also seen outbreaks in other subpopulations that refuse vaccines. So this question of, you know, if we can get, say, 70% of the people in the United States covered with a vaccine uh, by summer, does that lead us to 
approaching herd immunity, I think it's pretty hard to predict um, because we don't know, all, we, there are still some variables missing from really figuring that out. You know, um, It would depend very much on some things that are still largely unknown about kids and transmission because we will not have a vaccine for kids by this summer. And then it'll depend a lot on, on how much disease is circulating in other places and the, you know, the heterogeneity, how even the coverage we can get here in the United States is with the vaccine. So I'm very concerned that we're gonna see subpopulations uh, who refuse the vaccine here in the United States and that it will be pretty hard to achieve herd immunity because of that. Yeah, I, there are all sorts of uh, aspects that go into these dynamics. That's why I think herd immunity is is the goal. We know what we want it to do, but uh, exactly the numbers of people, and it probably won't be homogeneous. I, as you said, vaccine uptake and then even native infection, which I think we'll talk about later and how that uh, contributes are, are also very important. Uh, as you think about herd immunity, I mean, if you were to counsel either patients or other doctors there, you know, it always boils down to me to sort of argue you're not only protecting yourself, but you're helping your fellow citizens, right? And um, that's the same thing with social mitigation strategies and so on. What, what said, I mean, how does herd immunity, and you're a specialist in this, what kind of messages do you like to to say about it, um, you know, what are what are the benefits? I think you know sometimes it's really fraught. Like there, there's a state bill in California mandatory measles immunization. We're not yet at mandatory immunization, so this is still volunteer because we have investigational vaccines. So uh, you know, how are we going to use the herd immunity concept uh, to encourage people? So. I started off with this idea that I really think that reaching herd immunity is the big picture end goal. But what we've got in the meantime is individual level protection from these vaccines. And so, you know, each person who gets the vaccine is pretty well protected from themselves both getting COVID-19 and it's really looking like in all probability transmitting COVID-19 to other people. Um, that second question about whether, whether after we've been vaccinated, we can still get an asymptomatic infection and then transmit it is open right now, but there's kind of a trail of breadcrumbs leading us to, it really looks like there will be at least reduced risk of um, asymptomatic infection and transmission. So each person who gets vaccinated is both protecting themselves and directly protecting the people around them from catching COVID from them. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, we can also think about the population level, the sort of this, this common good um, contribution that we're making to reaching herd immunity. So each person who has been vaccinated is one more person who is uh, immune to the disease personally and also is contributing to to reaching that threshold where the disease just won't have any more readily available hosts and will die out uh, which is the path to us getting back to normal yeah I, I have sometimes used the analogy of course you can protect yourself but your own family your own living situation is its own herd if you had everyone immunized there you would sort of feel better now imagine your town then imagine your state now imagine your country. 
And, and it's the same concept because I think if someone knew they were immunized in their household, you wouldn't mind visiting another household, I think. Uh, you might still be a little cautious because we have a lot of cases circulating, uh, but but it's sort of that, um, how should I say, that protective element that also helps decrease some of the anxiety, concern that you might infect someone else or, or you may acquire the disease. Yeah, and then the additional thing that I would say there is that there are some people who cannot be vaccinated or, or for whom the vaccine is more likely to not work. Um, and so there are people who are allergic to vaccine components. There are people who have um, compromised immune systems or possibly no immune system because of other, other conditions they have. And so, um, and then of course there are people who are too young to be vaccinated. And in the case of these, these COVID-19 vaccines, uh, all children are unable to be vaccinated. Uh, with the exception of 16 and 17 year olds with, with the Pfizer vaccine. So right now, really the only protection that we can offer to kids is to get adults vaccinated and, and protect uh, children from catching disease from us. And so, I mean, one of the main benefits of reaching herd immunity is that we can also protect people from people who can't be immunized or whose vaccine doesn't take, so to speak, for whatever reason, from any kind of exposure. Yeah, I, I, I remind people from the immunization of influenza, there's the emphasis to immunize the children because it's the grandchildren that give the flu to the grandparents who are most susceptible and so on. And yeah. although we're not, we're not sure that's the case all the time, especially with youngsters, perhaps different with adolescents, uh, the same concept is there. We we really we want to get all groups, but even these targeted groups uh, can be uh, very helpful. Yeah, and we see the the just the reverse pattern with the pertussis vaccine. Of course, we we really encourage um, pregnant women and new grandparents to get their pertussis vaccine because, um, and particularly for older adults, the pertussis uh, immunity begins to wane as we age and. Um, we can get a, a low symptom case of pertussis, often without even realizing it, and then, um, of course, inadvertently giving it to someone who's really susceptible, who is a newborn. Yeah, I think maybe we'll, we'll close this segment with something that just, what, what's a good motivator? Uh, there have been issues with COVID shaming, for example. How do we get people that might be on the fence, and this is, of course, not just vaccine hesitancy, but but just trying to help contribute to uh, the sense of reaching herd immunity. Well, I think there are, um, one of the challenges here is that it, it's, I've learned over the last year, especially that it's quite hard for many people to think at this population level. We often think at a smaller scale. And so I think that analogy or that, um, that point that you made that it not only protects us personally when we get vaccinated, uh, it also protects our families and um, particularly the members of our families who can't be vaccinated now. Uh, that has been, um, I think that's sort of the smallest scale of herd immunity and that's the one that is the highest impact in terms of talking to most people who don't really think about, you know, whole country level population effects. Yep. Yeah, so uh, certainly I think that's a great point, keeping it local and personal is uh, often uh, some of the most effective messaging, uh, I think, at a 
uh, level, we always look at statistics. We want to see what percentage we are, but this is going to be a battle fought in very small, small steps to get to the larger herd immunity. So I really want to thank you, Dr. Jones, for uh, this highly interesting segment on herd immunity. And uh, hopefully in the next several months, we'll get to that 70% or whatever that number is that's required. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you very much to Dr. Jones and Dr. Allwater for those updates. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.